Good morning, everyone. Gadgin here with Ramesh, the VP of Product Devices at Rocketin Kobo. We're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about products themselves, how you design something, how do you navigate change, and dealing with negative feedback and all that kind of stuff. And this is really special for me because I am an ebook user. So just getting in the mind of you to see how this thing comes from maybe a sketch to something that we're actually using. So definitely make sure to check out the entire episode. But also, if you want to hear the full conversation, check out the link in the description. Ramesh, thank you for sitting down with us. Uh, you have a really interesting job. So rather than me saying your title, can you let us know what your title is and what you're responsible for here? Sure. Um, uh, I'm VP of product for devices here at Kobo. And uh, what what my team does is really pretty much every aspect of the uh, e-readers. So devices for us are e-readers. That's mm -hmm. all we make right now. And uh, really everything that sort of the end user touches, feels, experiences with the device, it's, it's our responsibility to build. So uh, we have this really great team of creatives that includes everything from industrial design to user interface design, uh, but we also do the actual hardware development. So going from sort of conceptual all the way to the detailed under the hood engineering right. and things like what processor and what display are we using uh, and taking it all the way to being mass produced. So sort of the scope of my team when we think about a product is, you know, we start at the very beginning, sort of the ideation uh, phase where you're sort of blue skying, what should you do next? Mm -hmm. And the journey begins there and it really ends with e-reader in your hands right, right. that you're reading. So it's really kind of a, that, that big scope. So it, it touches on sort of so many kind of usability, creative, as well as technical dimensions mm -hmm. because uh, uh, all of those sort of go into kind of giving you that, that final experience. Yeah, and there's a lot to dissect there because I want to talk about the product. I want to talk about the design process. But let's talk about you first. Sure. What was your path to this role? Because this sounds like, again, an amazing gig, yeah. uh, you know, designing products that eventually are going to be used by millions of people. But what was your path here? Like, what did you take in school? How did you ultimately end up at this position yeah. here? Sure. Uh, I mean, I actually come from a very technical background. So uh, I uh, did uh, my undergraduate and graduate work in electrical engineering. Right, right. So uh, I was actually, uh, early in my career, I was a, a radio guy. So basically, I... I design sort of cellular communication systems. So, you okay. know, if you've heard of like 3G, 4G, 5G, right, right. like that's what, that was my bread and butter. So I was sort of in deep into designing how those networks work, designing how the protocols are used to communicate. So, so it was very sort of far away. Which uh, company was this with? Um, well, with? I spent the bulk of my time at a startup called Soma Networks. Okay. Uh, kind of in sort of the 2000s time frame. Gotcha, uh, gotcha. I was there for quite a while, actually, almost 10 years. And we were doing some really amazing stuff. And this is, again, for most people that don't know, this is before 3G was like a common thing. This no, I mean. these technologies took off. In many ways, we developed 3G before it existed. So we were yeah. kind of like pioneering that kind of work. Uh, the iPhone 3G didn't come out till 2008, so exactly. I, this is way before So we're that. talking about like 99 type right, time right. frame when I started, like yeah. fresh out of grad school. And right. it was kind of an amazing opportunity because I just finished grad school. I was doing, you know, in grad school inherently, you're doing academic research. Mm -hmm. It's very theoretical, very mm -hmm. mathematical. And I 
got this job at this startup that was here in Toronto, which was the other great thing about it. Yeah, I always yeah. assumed I'd end up in Silicon Valley or somewhere. Right. But my uh, prof- my supervisor for my master's degree at the time was advising the startup here, and they were working on this product. And I came out of grad school and started there. Uh, it was pure startup environment, mm-hmm. kind of crazy from sort of a work intensity point of view. But to a large degree, sort of the task I was given was sort of like, Here's a blank piece of paper. Uh, You know, there's these embryonic 3G technology under development, but it's really just for kind of making phone calls and stuff. And we want to use it to basically replace, like, as an alternative to broadband internet in the home, like, you know, cable Mm -hmm. and DSL, that kind of stuff, like the way you get your internet typically now. Uh, And we, our goal was to build a wireless version of that. Right. And kind of, so to do so necessarily, it was like, okay, well, how do you do that? okay, we have to kind of start with 3G, but that's got not good enough, so we have to build something even better than that. Right. And that was sort of just being given sort of a blank piece of paper. Was it exciting or scary or a mix of both? Because, uh, again, there was no, like, I was, I, plan I, for this, It right? was purely exciting, and I think the reason was I was too naive at the time to realize <laughs> how ridiculous a task it was, just right. to sort of, like, this small company with, you know, just do this, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. so it was just fun. It was... Right. And it was cool because what, you know, kind of tying to coming from a very technical and academic background, one of the things that, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the technology, but even at the time, even though we were building networks, which are pretty far removed from the user, at the end of the day, someone was going to be, you know, surfing the internet over home over this thing. So we still Mm -hmm. had to really think about sort of what that end user experience Mm -hmm. was. And that's something that I think sort of, I've done a lot of different things, but that sort of has been kind of a uh, a unifying theme, I guess, through my career right, is thinking right. about the user. And uh, in this case, it was, well, how do you surf the internet over this technology that was originally designed just for phone calls? Right, right. Uh, so that was sort of the task there. And in retrospect, I look now and I kind of look at the sort of people who hired me and I'm like, wow, that was kind of crazy that you just sort of like got a bunch of grad students together yeah. and said, hey, make this happen. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think partially sometimes you benefit from not knowing truly how hard a task is. Right, right. So you're just like, okay, let's give it a shot. Yeah. And, and we did. So we did some pretty amazing stuff, but uh, got to kind of experience the full spectrum of startup life, including eventually showing up one day and there were locks on the door because we ran out of money. And no way. And shut down. Yeah. So, and uh, did the operation end after this? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Just... Ground to a halt. And, and you that guys was didn't it. get any kind of notice, a letter, email, nothing? No, nah, I mean, you know, we had a bit of a sense it was coming because, okay. you know, we knew the money was running short. Right, right, right. Um, it turns out when you're trying to develop technology that you're and products that you're selling to, like, giant carrier companies, like talking like Bell or Verizon or those, mm-hmm. those types mm-hmm. of guys, um, for, as a startup, that's a really hard thing to do. And I was always focused on the technology and development side of it that, you know, sort of the business side of it was something that I was kind of peripherally aware of. And ultimately, that's where we, you know, crashed and burned. I mean, we raised a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. But the scale of what we were trying to do was so huge that... Where did the work go? So you put all this time into (laughs) the work itself. Was that evaporated or... It largely evaporated, uh, with the only exception being the IP itself. So there's a lot of patents that came out of the work. like dozens and dozens of patents and beyond like the literal value of like furniture in the building, which is of course barely anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the IP itself, the patent portfolio was what was left. Yeah. And when the company was dissolved, it got sold off. 
Uh, and a bunch of it just sort of ended up in various places because what is some of the some of the actual patents we developed were core to what eventually became the 3G standard. Right, right. right. And so uh, the likes of, like, I actually think a big chunk of our patent portfolio from Soma is owned by, I think, Samsung or something now. Wow. So, like, the big players bought it. Because they, they're in the they're in the game of, like, just amassing IP. Yeah, protecting um, themselves as much as possible. It's the game. That's exactly it. That's right. exactly the game. Uh, so that's, so in terms of what came out of it, at the end of the day, end of the day it was really nothing but just a big path that portfolio. feeling and again a lot of our listeners can can resonate with this where you put your heart and soul into then years into something and all of a sudden it's gone maybe evaporates maybe it's stolen or someone else has yeah. better. like how did you deal with that feeling what did you do at this point i mean i think it wasn't an abrupt transmission transition as much as it seems with the doors being locked because we could kind of see yeah. that was coming right so you know at that point i sort of and and over the time there i got a bit more mature so i was like you know at the end of the day actually i would have fundamentally love to see this out there so that millions or billions of people are actually like engaging with the thing you develop. Like I think as when you make things, you know, whether it's more technical product, whether it's more artistic creation, like at least for me, a huge value is in knowing that people are using it, that it's being touched. Right. right, Um, right. So, so that part of it was disappointing because it never really went that, that far. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, there was still just, a lot of satisfaction in knowing that I can say for sort of a period of time from probably like about 2000 to 2005, what we made was prob arguably, and some might debate this, but arguably the most advanced sort of next generation wireless communications right. technology that was out there. Right. So, you know, that that's, and, and obviously personally, like, you know, I learned and grew enormously in through the process of doing that yeah. so that's kind of the personal value and that kind of mitigates the fact that at the end of the day it largely went poof. yeah 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 so at this point what did you see as your future did you kind of have to recalibrate and figure out what you wanted well, to do absolutely or? i mean at that point i had a uh, i had a young family uh my my kids were like so you're a father at this point yeah, well. oh, yeah, yeah 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 my kids are like 9 11 now but at the time uh the younger one was a baby right. and the older one was like two years old so it's like okay well Time, yeah. time to figure out what's going yeah, on. Yeah. You know, we just bought a house a few years ago prior to that point. Yeah. So obviously, you know, I was looking for a job. In many ways, it was a bit of a blessing because um, having two small kids really close in age to each other, 15 months apart, My, like I said, my mm-hmm. youngest was like maybe eight months old at the time that this all went down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a way, you know, being kicked out onto the street was a bit of a blessing. You know, I basically went on a pokey for four months (laughs) and uh, I got to stay home and, you know, kind of be, be, Mm -hmm. be a father at home. Yeah. Give my, you know, wife a, break because you can imagine and like some pretty crucial years in your kids absolutely so so honestly in some in many ways like it was kind of a blessing right uh and i mean that being said i'm really lucky and privileged in that you know obviously i had a you know reasonably marketable set of skills i had some pretty good connections and network in the industry so at the time uh, uh a colleague of mine who you know, he, he was, he, we worked together in grad school or we were like students at the same time. And then after I got the job at Soma, he got a job there, mm-hmm. but he was smart enough to realize that, you know, things were going to go bad. And right. so he left Soma a few years before the end and ended up going over to Blackberry, which was still called RIM at the time. Right, right. And if you're in the wireless space in Canada, right. I mean, at the time, RIM kind of was like sort of a, you know, had just a certain gravitational of pull of people. 
so he'd been there already, so he introduced me to some people, and I ended up getting a job over there. Right. Um, and it was a bit of a different job because, like, at Soma, I was very much sort of the technical architect, designer type thing. Uh, me and my team really got into the guts mm -hmm. of designing this technology. At uh, BlackBerry, I ended up being a program manager, which is a really interesting job because you're sort of the ringmaster or the conductor. Right. So in a sense, you're not actually creating any of the work yourself, but you keep the, for any complex technical product, there's an amazingly disparate set of things that comes together. Yeah. So if you're thinking about a phone, and this is true of the Kobo e-readers today, you have everything from the physical design, industrial design, which is sort of the touch and feel and aesthetics mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. outside, the technology, the software, the marketing, what does it take to actually get this thing in store? Yeah. You know, just the logistics of going out to retail. So one of the things a program manager does is essentially just juggle all those balls, keep it all on track, right, right. make sure you deliver the product on time at exactly the cost that you said it was going to cost when you started at the mm -hmm, beginning. Mm -hmm. So so I spent, uh, and, and the other great thing about that was all my time at Soma was kind of behind the scenes. I wasn't dealing very much with the actual thing as a consumer that you touch. It was right, more right. of the technology that enables it. And so what was cool was getting an opportunity to actually deal with the physical device. The is that something that product. always attracted you that you wanted to do or is it something that you found out later that you it, wanted to be a part of? I think it developed. And gotcha. you know, I was certainly when I started at SOMO, I was just about the core radio technology. Like that was my thing and that's right, what I was right, immersed right. in. But over time you sort of realize that there's another side of it and the side that people actually interact with. So, right. uh, and also just pragmatically, like, you know, I was also looking for a job and I didn't, you know, I was preferred to stay put rather than move. Yeah. And Waterloo was, you know, a long commute from Toronto, but yeah. it was still possible. Yeah. So, uh, so there was kind of a bunch of elements and then it was great. I wasn't there for a ton of time, maybe about a year and a half, but it was like a crash course in everything about building a and phone. Again, it was at a time where, I mean, now people almost like laugh at BlackBerry. It's almost that kind of thing. But at that time, that was like the place to be. It was at its peak. So actually, over the year and a half that I was there, yeah. literally probably exactly at the halfway point I was there was probably when BlackBerry peaked. Right. And then after that, it started to decline. But yeah. it certainly wasn't... I kind of felt... It wasn't because it, you left, right? No, 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 no We're not going to go and say that. Okay, absolutely right. not. Absolutely <laughs> not. But, you know, I certainly being there felt... Observed little bits and pieces here and there that this is going in the wrong direction. Right. And so I kind of felt that. Plus as well, like, you know, at a program man as a program manager, you don't really have a lot of input into what the product is. Mm -hmm. That wasn't my role there. And for timing, is this 2007? Exactly, around, around that time around frame. That. Okay, exactly gotcha, around gotcha. that time frame. Uh, and I, I fundamentally wanted to make things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and it was great to help coordinate the making of things and certainly to see how all this stuff comes together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what was clear at BlackBerry, it was a hugely top-down, decision-driven organization. Right. The CEO really made all the calls right. to the point where I saw a lot of people at like the senior executive level, like senior vice presidents yeah. and vice presidents, who ultimately didn't have as much as an Im of an impact mm -hmm. as I would have wanted to have myself in right. terms of like driving what products are, are made. Right. So that kind of also just confirmed to me that it wasn't really the right place mm -hmm. for me. And I got lucky as well, right around the same time that I started at BlackBerry, um, 
I live not far from here uh, in, in the Little Italy neighborhood mm -hmm. here. Okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, we were, I mean, my wife were with our kids at the playground. And we were standing there while they were, you know, on, on the swings or mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. And hanging out. And there just happened to be this, uh, this, this couple standing next to us. And, you know, we just started chatting with them. Uh, and just kind of ran into the park, ran to them at the park over and over again and mm -hmm. became friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of them, this gentleman, uh, was the CTO of Kobo. Oh, no way. Yeah, and it was just sort of... Serendipitous in a way. It was yeah. totally serendipitous. And, you know, we started talking about what they were doing, what I was doing. Right. And it took a while. Like, it was probably at least a year later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then uh, the timing was good, so I came to work here. Nice. And so that's kind of how that transitioned. And we're, we're going to talk about that, but I, I, have to, I feel like I have to ask you at this point. You're at... Rim, yeah. BlackBerry manufacturer. The iPhone has been announced. It's shown on demo. Yeah. I won't ask you to speak on behalf of the company, but what was your impressions at that time being at this you know, major competitor yeah. and seeing that being so announced? So I started at BlackBerry a bit after the iPhone was announced. Okay, gotcha. And so it was out there a bit, but obviously it was very much on top of mind right. uh, when I got there. Right. So I got there in the time frame of the iPhone like 3G. So that gotcha. the okay. second or the third one of gotcha. them. And, you know, RIM was really torn because there was definitely a sentiment that this is a toy. Right. And, and frankly, you know, that came from the top. Like, mm -hmm. even the CEO made statements to that effect. Yeah. Uh, but then at the same time, there was a recognition that this is real. We have to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of this tension there between those two camps. Right. And I think part of the challenge, and this kind of ties back you know, one of the major lessons learned for me being at Kobo now and making mm. products for people is, you know, I talk, you talk about the user, the person who's actually going to use your product. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I found, and this is a personal observation only, but that was quite striking at RIM at the time was, I remember my first few months there, um, whenever you heard the word customer right. from the perspective of someone who worked at RIM, they weren't actually typically talking about the end user. They were talking about the corporate IT department that would oh, buy wow. a thousand of these and mandate all right. their employees use them. Very B2B focused. Very much. Or they were talking about a carrier, like a Verizon or a Sprint gotcha, or something. Gotcha. So there was very much a mindset that that's who the customer was. Mm. And it always felt a bit like the actual user, the person who's physically interacting with this yeah, thing, yeah. was secondary. Right. And... You know, everyone has a theory as to sort of why, you know, RIM ultimately ended up where it was or BlackBerry. Uh, and there's been many books written on it and stuff. But certainly for me personally, like, I found that very striking. Mm -hmm. I noticed that right away. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, I, and I think that's, you know, if you're making a product that's ultimately good, you have to really... And I would argue primarily be focused on the person who's going to use the product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and certainly that's our philosophy here. Right. I mean, it's a bit different because we're much more directly a B2C company. We're making products for readers. Yeah. And so we think about the readers very much. Uh, but, you know, I think that's really critical uh, if, you're, uh, if you're making anything that, you know, regular people are going to actually be mm -hmm. interacting with. Right, right, right. And when you eventually joined the Kobo team, did you come into this role? Were you in another role? And then no, I was more in a kind of technical kind of hardware engineering type role. Got so it. I was still a, I was still a product manager, mm -hmm. but a bit more narrowly focused on the physical devices itself. Mm -hmm. Whereas right now my scope's a bit broader because I sort of, and my team thinks about 
sort of that full totality of the experience. So that includes the physical devices, it includes the software and the user interface on those devices, every aspect of that experience, but it even extends to sort of the experience with the store on the device. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can both read on the device, but obviously you can buy books on the device. So, so we kind of think about that in totality. And so when I started, I didn't have that breadth of scope. That's kind of evolved over time. Gotcha, gotcha. So being in this role, you're way more in tune with the customer and how they're going to use it. What do you do to better understand your customer? Because there's people out there, there's creatives out there that are always trying to make something that's going to be appreciated by the masses. So you're always trying to put your mind you know, in, in their shoes, so to speak. So what do you do to kind of embody that? Um, I mean, to be honest, it's much less me than my whole team, right, right, but, right. Uh, but you know, sort of collectively. I'm sorry, I should say, when I say you, I mean you and your team. I should Fair practice enough. that for Fair this whole enough. interview. Because uh, there's a lot of people that put a lot of hours to make these things Absolutely. come from, you know, a sketch on a napkin to like something yeah. that's and, and the reality is all the real stuff. Exactly. The, you know, the, the designers, right, right, the software right, developers, right. the hardware architects, they're, yeah, they're yeah. doing the real stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to kind of, kind of work with all of them and have them be part of the team. But definitely that's where, you know, the real cool stuff's happening. Right. But to answer your question, I think fundamentally, like there's a lot of different ways we get sort of feedback and information, but we also start with some first principles. And I think it's really important to have some first principles as to who your user and customer is, what are the problems they're trying to solve? What do they want? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that that's kind of the starting point and it always must be. And so for us, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about people who, you know, fundamentally who read and, you know, but we broaden that and we think about sort of stories and being sort of escaping, being entertained, learning, because mm-hmm. the thing is, is we do both eBooks and audiobooks, right? Mm-hmm. So there's sort of a kind of the broad connective tissue between all of those things mm-hmm. is people want to spend time engaging with stories, learning new things. And so that's the starting point. So that's what people want to do. And we know that there's a lot of ways to do it. Obviously, there's print. Print books have, you know, as as a technology. We don't think of it as technology Mm -hmm. because it's so sort of, it's been around for so long. But really, at some point, it was just as new as anything else was, right? Uh, At a certain point, something when it's pervasive enough and it's been around long enough, it doesn't feel like a technology, Mm -hmm. but it still is. Mm -hmm. Plumbing's a technology if you don't think about it as such. So for us, we, you know, books are sort of the, you know, kind of the starting point and the inspiration. Uh, But we're in a world now where there's so many ways you can spend your time, right? So there's this fight for time, whether it's uh, social networking, whether it's streaming media, whether it's all these things. So one of the things we struggle with, or not struggle with, but one of the fundamental challenges is you know, getting people to engage more with reading, with listening. So that's sort of our starting point. Uh, And then, you know, one of the things we aspire to do is to have, you know, ideally the best way to read, for example. And so in in the context specifically of our e-readers, then Mm -hmm. that's really what we're going for is we... If you want to read a book, whether it's to, you know, escape into a mystery novel, whether it's to read some business book in order to, like, learn stuff that's going to help you in your career, there's a lot of different motivations, right? Right, right, right. But kind of the common denominator is what we know with reading is you typically are going to spend a lot of time at it, right? Like, it's not quite the same as, you know popping onto your Twitter feed and looking at it for a couple of minutes and then waiting. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's something you tend to engage with for larger chunks of time. And so it, that physical experience should be great. Right. And that's kind of, you know, sort of our, our fundamental kind of design principle that we want to achieve and that we're trying to 
get to with all of our products. Uh, we want to get to the best, be, to be the best way to do that. Are, are we that now? I mean, I think there's always opportunity for improvement, but that's certainly what we aspire towards. Um, so that's kind of one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is we have a product portfolio. We have millions of customers who are engaged with us, who are mm -hmm. reading on our platforms. We have a lot of ways of hearing from them. Mm -hmm. So we have feedback channels. People provide comments on our websites, on social, on a whole And even the unsolicited places. comments where they just Absolutely. throw it out there, right? So, so we're listening. Mm -hmm. so, so we're constantly sort of listening and taking in what people have to say in terms of how they want to improve it. Um, so we sort of have listening to the customer is one major aspect of it. Having sort of that guiding principle of being sort of the best way to read is another one. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then another one also is, you know, we within this building, within my team and then the broader uh, team of Kobo that are here, um, there's a lot of expertise. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, we think about, okay, what can we do next? Uh, what new technologies are out there? And for us, it's, the technology is always a means to an end. Right. But is there something out there that in our next generation device lets it be better? So, for example, you know, with the Kobo Forma, the one we just, the e-reader we just launched, our premium e-reader, uh, one of the things we were really going for was to be incredibly comfortable. Right. And if you're reading for hours, and it's amazing. People read for, there's people who read for hours a day. Yeah. Like the, the hot, the, the sort of, uh, most engaged readers. I'm always amazed when there's someone that can read a book a week. I'm oh, like, yeah. how many hours are you putting in to do that? I'm yeah. envious as well. I'm not knocking it, but yeah. And we have a lot of people who do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so if you're reading for hours, the physical comfort becomes mm -hmm. much more significant. Yeah, way and, more emphasis placed on that, yeah. weight, ergonomics, all those things. So we were thinking about, we really want to take it to the next level. Mm -hmm. And then there is this technology that was lining up along the same time, which was like, you've seen these sort of flexible plastic displays. Right. Uh, and one of the things that that kind of screen does is enable a really thin and light device. And so we were like, okay, that technology is just getting to the point of maturity right. that we could put it into our product. But we weren't doing it just for the sake of saying, oh, we have this cool new display technology. Right, right. It was about the fact that it enabled ultimately a very comfortable reading experience. Right, right, right. And so that's sort of an example of there's trends in the technology front, there's there's feedback from our customers, there's our own sort of kind of expertise and intuition, and then there's kind of the guiding principles. And kind of all that comes together mm -hmm. and that sort of leads to... And, and I'll talk about the formula, but I want to go back to 2010. I don't know yeah. if you were with Kobo at the time, but that's when I got my first e-reader yeah. in yeah. general. And at the time when I was looking at the e-reader market, I'm like, they all seem cold. Yes. And when the Kobo, I believe it was a Kobo Wi-Fi, when it came out, the one thing that they were known for was the quilted back. Yes, exactly. And picking that up, and I'm like, this feels nice in the hand. Yep. Um, along with, when you pair that with the technology of the like e-ink display and all that kind of stuff, I'm like, okay, I could see myself using this. Yep. So how does the process go when you decide on including something like a feature like a quilted back or a new innovative feature, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. what is sort of that design uh, timeline well, I mean, like? Part of it, well, the timeline, it, it varies because we sort of have an approach, and this isn't, I think, unique to us. You see this a lot in the technology industry. We have a certain sort of specific timeline of product development. So, you know, we have three devices in our portfolio right now. Um, we sort of typically, one might be sort of in the market for a couple of years before we think about, okay, is it time to replace it? it can we, in fact, replace it with something better? Because mm -hmm. otherwise, what's the point, right? Mm -hmm. If we don't want something new that's actually compelling and different from the previous right, product, right. then it's just, you know, has no real value to right. the customer. So we have kind of a 
I would say, a business-driven sort of plan for putting out new products. At the same time, there's always new technologies, new design concepts, right? So new materials, new ways the thing could feel. And so we're kind of working those in parallel mm -hmm. and then kind of figuring out, oh, hey, this, this particular idea can connect with this particular product. But to the thing about the quilted back particularly, like that sort of goes back to, you know, we've had this real goal with our brand identity of being approachable um, and physical comfort is mm -hmm. kind of a very natural extension of taking sort of a conceptual thing like approachability right. and manifesting it in a physical product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's something that sort of our design team that actually like predates me even kind of first did. And that quilted back, mm -hmm. I think, was really really resonated it, it with was people. weird it's like a fidget cube kind of thing because you Absolutely. just want to run your fingers along exactly it. Yeah, yeah and fundamentally if you're reading for a long time we want to give you something that you want to hold for right, a long time right, right. so that was kind of the core inspiration and we've really tried you know it's evolved over time mm -hmm. but we've really tried to kind of retain that feeling uh, through all of our devices even right. today. So now our approach is a little bit different rather than a quilted back We have this sort of textured pattern in the back that feels kind of comfortable We want it to be a little bit grippy so mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like it's gonna slip out of your hand mm -hmm. You know, you don't want something again for comfort and long-term reading You don't necessarily want something sort of cold or metallic mm -hmm. or slippery uh, so we've always been kind of going very consciously to for a feeling that kind of isn't continually ties back to what we did with that first quilted back right. while still moving forward from a design point of view. Right, right, right. And you have multiple products there. How do you decide uh, or what constitutes something that goes into a family of products? You have, like you said, three categories, so to speak, yeah. from... Uh, how do you decide which one gets to be its own category? Its own oh, yeah. yeah you know, it, it kind of developed a bit organically. So back at that time frame, if you think about 2010, uh, everyone really only had one e Right. And they were all very similar, frankly. There wasn't a lot of differentiation between a Kobo or a Kindle or a Nook at the time or mm -hmm. a Sony at the time, mm -hmm. even though Nook and Sony have, you know, kind of, well, Sony's completely exited the, the, mm -hmm. the business, the product category. Nook's sort of still there, but mm -hmm. has definitely, uh, is a bit of a shadow of its old self. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of differentiation between them. So we didn't have a portfolio at the mm -hmm. time. We just had one e-reader at any mm -hmm. given time. Uh, and then in sort of 2012-ish timeframe, um, we kind of made a leap We, because e-readers, the other thing about e-readers at the time is it was a bit of a race to the bottom is but getting down to a lower and lower mm -hmm. price point. Let's get to $99 and yeah, below. Like sub like 100, sort of, sub 200 and half. That was yeah. the goal. Yeah. Um, and we sort of thought about it a bit and said, hey, maybe there's actually an opportunity for something that's more premium. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a lot of kind of analysis and research, but it was also a bit of just a leap uh, and we did sort of one of the first sort of premium e-readers and so it was called the Aura HD mm -hmm. and so it was actually almost a 7 inch screen, a 6.8 inch screen rather than the other 6 inch right, screens. Right. And larger yeah. overall amount. Your eyes perceive it bigger than it absolutely is. It's about, yeah. And, and, it, and in terms of area, yeah. it's, uh, I'm, I'm estimating the math here, but it's like about 20% larger. Right. And, um, and it was, uh, we, and it was higher in price. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the leap. It's like, well, we've just been, everyone's been trying to drive the price down. And now right. here we are coming out with this 169.99 e-reader, yeah. uh, but it was really successful. Mm -hmm. So what we really figured out with that was there's actually a segment of the market mm -hmm. that's 
wants a more premium device with a better experience. Was it people telling you that they wanted more premium features or were you taking more of a gamble on this point? Uh, you know, thinking back to that time, it was a while ago, it was <laughs> six years ago. I think it was a bit of both. I think it was an instance where we sort of looked at the market and said, there's a gap here mm -hmm. and there's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and that's always kind of, you know, the challenge with business, right? Like you sort of, from a product hat, you think about how awesome it should be and how great it could be. But then, you know, you put your sort of business hat on and you're like, well, is this going to sell? Right. Are we going to make any money off of it? Or are we going to lose? How much are we going to lose? Mm -hmm. Right. So there's all those considerations mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and, uh, and there was considerable investment associated with it, uh, to do something new like that. Right. Because uh, all the standard screens were that six inch screen. We all had to use the same e-ink screen, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was something that was new for us. And whenever you're doing something new on the screen side, there's an upfront investment. Right, right. Uh, so, so we did that and it went great. Uh, and then we evolved that product over a few generations. So the, the, the follow-up to that was the same screen size, but was our first waterproof device. Mm -hmm. The first H2O, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so... So then we had the experience that there's, there's clearly an appetite for something more premium. And then we decided to take it up a notch, basically. <laughs> and then that's when we started talking about what now is the, uh, what became the Aura One. Mm -hmm. We're like, well, you know, and, and, you know, we were looking at broader industry trends as well. We weren't just kind of pulling this out of whole cloth. And one of the things, if you think about phones, was... What became pretty clear in that same time frame was people like bigger screens. Mm -hmm. uh, and phones just got bigger and bigger. When Samsung first put out the Note, everyone thought it was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And they, got, they even had a term for it, the phablet. phablet yeah. No one uses the term phablet anymore because every phone's that big. <laughs> exactly, almost, exactly. Right? It's just a phone now. Yeah. And so you saw that there was this trend towards larger screens. Right. The other thing we were conscious always of is just the differentiation between an e-reader and a phone because people read on their phones as right, well. Right. And we you know, cater to that because we have apps for iOS and Android, right. and you can kind of move seamlessly. Kobo was pretty at the forefront of this because you had your from gamification that was available on your ebook and it had synced all in the background. Exactly, all yeah. that was there. Um, but as phones got larger and larger and started approaching the size of an e-reader right. screen, we saw the need for additional differentiation. Why use an e-reader? And there's right. lots of reasons why e-readers are great in our view, obviously. We're mm. a little biased, but yeah. uh, our customers seem to agree. Uh, so as phones were getting larger, we saw that, you know, it made sense for e-readers to get larger as well. And so with the uh, Aura 1, uh, we were trying to do something really thin, really light at the mm -hmm. time, and we ended up going up to a 7.8-inch screen. Right. Um, and again, there was a leap in, in cost. So mm -hmm. that was, I think, uh, 229 US product, yeah. like 249 Canada. Yeah. And uh, uh, we launched it, and uh, again, it was really great yeah, yeah. and in fact like those premium devices make up a pretty healthy chunk of our overall device sales right, right. so what we really established at that point was there was an appetite for a really premium experience mm -hmm. and it makes sense because if you have people who are reading dozens and dozens of books a year which are sort of mm -hmm. our, our, our uh, voracious customers do mm -hmm. um, they're not necessarily going to be as price sensitive as someone who uh, because they're buying all these books, right? Right, right? And when you consider it sort of relative to what they're paying for books, I mean, the analogy I think of when we think about cost for, for devices is if you shift to a different person with a different preference for their entertainment, people are willing to spend a lot of money. Let's think about gaming, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you think about what a gaming rig costs yeah. or even like a PS4 or something like that uh, or an SLR, a really great camera, right? The reality is if you're really into something, mm -hmm. 
not everyone, but some people are going to be willing to invest in yeah, it. Exactly. And essentially, that's the same premise behind our high-end e-reader. You know, sure, every phone comes with a cheap pair of headphones, but that doesn't mean there isn't a market for you know a really great set of cans. Right, right, right. right. So, so that's and 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 so then we we launched the Aura One, and again worked out great for us right. and it sort of felt that and so we ended up kind of organically developing to this portfolio now which is basically good better best right uh, and so you know we want to have a great experience across that range but inherently you know the the more premium devices by virtue of being more expensive we can do more things with them whether it's a larger screen whether it's you know uh, a better or better ergonomics and more comfort right, and all right, that kind of thing. right. And, you know you mentioned the good better best because I had I guess what would be considered the entry-level Kobo years ago yeah I now use the Corbo or a one and I love this thing yeah uh, and that they didn't pay me to say that just, <laughs> I truly I mean I wouldn't invest if I didn't uh, believe in it um, do you guys think in terms of moving the customer up that gradient or is it more about these are three silos and we're happy whichever silo you decide I think it's a bit of both I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I mean, we certainly see uh, people upgrading mm -hmm. to newer devices, mm -hmm. but at the same time, people are just coming in to Kobo as a brand new customer. Right. And uh, some of them are going straight to the high-end devices. Some of them are going to the entry-level devices. Gotcha. I think it's, you know, there's a lot going on there. Part of it is just how new people are to the idea of e-reading. Mm -hmm. You know, they, do they want to try it out on something smaller? Uh, in some cases, though, they're just immediately drawn to that mm -hmm. larger screen. Right. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of everything, really. Gotcha. And as you're designing these products in your own career, was there ever a reality check for you? Was there ever like a, a point where you kind of had to take a step back maybe and, you know, really think about how you go about your decision making or your job uh, Absolutely, yeah. There's a, one good example that I can think of is... Uh, Back in sort of the 2012-2013 time frame, everyone was hot on tablets. Right. Uh, and so uh, everyone was putting out these new tablets. You know, you had the Kindle Fires. Mm -hmm. Kobo started with our own tablet, the Vox, mm -hmm. and we followed it up with the Arc. And then the year after that, we did three tablets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, ultimately, from a business perspective, that didn't work out for us. Right. Uh, and, you know, the reality was in that world, you were you were trying to differentiate yourself against, you know, Samsung and iPads, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, so it ultimately was an area that we exited. And frankly, it's been to our benefit. You right, know, our e-reader... Right. Our e our e Especially looking at the tablet market as it is now. Exactly. Right? It's kind of gotten a bit stagnant, yeah, right? Yeah. So our e-reader business is doing really great. It really delivers on sort of the experience we want for the users. But if I think back to sort of myself at that time, you know, I was like, I got so caught up in how great it was to make all these awesome tablets. And we did make some awesome tablets. Yeah. Like, There's some really great stuff at the time. I didn't think enough about is this the right thing to do from sort of a business perspective, from really serving the customer needs that are at our core. Right. And so certainly, you know, as a business overall, I think we learned a lot from that experience. But mm -hmm. I know for me personally, in my career, it made me really think about just because something's cool to do mm -hmm. and fun and you know, innovative doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. And especially when you think about it in the context of a business. That's something so. that a lot of people can resonate with. So, And usually it comes with making the mistake and learning from that yeah. as well. How did you navigate that point? When you were seeing this happen and come to sort of fruition, uh, what were you thinking that you were going to do differently going forward? I think I was, I was certainly like being much more conscious of 
the overall business considerations in developing right. the product and not just sort of a pure maker hat. Right. And, you know, as a product manager um, and as someone who's responsible for product, that, that's really critical, mm -hmm. uh, especially, you know, in some areas, uh, I would say more on the software side, on the e-commerce side, that connection is inherent because fundamentally your criteria for success is you look at numbers that come that you get very quick feedback on. Uh, what's really challenging with building hardware, building devices, is there's a really long time from when you make the decision to start down the road of building a product mm -hmm. until you actually have some good sense of what the market reaction is. Right. You know, at, in the shortest time frame from when we sort of conceive of and formally kick off building a new device till it's in store is on the order of a year. Right. And then once it launches, it takes many months after that to start seeing the numbers. So, yeah, yeah. so, so you make decisions that you're not going to actually see the commercial implications of for a year and a half. Wow. So, so that's something that you have to be very conscious of. And it's easy at the front end to just be caught Is it caught frustrating up. sometimes that, you know, the decisions you make today, you just won't know what the result is, you know, well after a year? No, I mean, it's just the nature of the beast, right? It's, gotcha. it's, it's part of part yeah. of this kind of job, right? right. Uh, and I mean, what's interesting with, I guess it teaches you patience in a way as well. Absolutely. No, building hardware is, takes a lot of patience. Right. It's, uh, it's, it, it inherently has to be a very structured process. A lot of disciplines required. You think about things like, quality right. like when think about when you get a phone and oh my bluetooth isn't connected to my headphones this right. I'm, I'm pissed off there's there's so many different technical elements from whether it works well being dunked in water because we make waterproof devices mm -hmm. uh, over different temperatures how easy is it for brick to, to break how well does the wi-fi work how responsive is it how nice do these buttons feel does mm -hmm. this paint feel nice and there's so many dimensions that from a quality point of view that impact the customer. Mm -hmm. And you have to plan for every single aspect of that from the mm -hmm. get-go. There's a huge amount of intentionality. There's not a single element of it that you don't plan for from the beginning and put processes in place along the way. So for example, testing, we test the hell out of these things in just so many different ways mm -hmm. so that when you finally get to the point where you're starting mass production, there's a huge investment up to that point. Right, so there's right. a lot of imperative that you get it right. right. Uh, and, you know, is it always perfect? No. And you sometimes fix things as you go and stuff, but still the expectation is there. Right, right. You know, there's this line that uh, someone said, I think it was uh, Reid Hoffman, I believe. He's the uh, founder of LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And he said something along the lines of, if you're not embarrassed by your first release of your product, mm -hmm. um, you launch too late. Mm -hmm. And that's a bit of a sentiment in sort of startup world and in software world mm -hmm. uh, or app world, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense because you kind of want to get something out there, get immediate feedback from the users. Maybe it has some problems and stuff, but that feedback from users is really powerful and you can kind yeah, of continuously yeah. I think there's parallels there for photographers where yeah. I think we're just perpetually embarrassed by all our photographs no, exactly. all the time until the next going. one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The problem with hardware is you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. You don't get that luxury. No, you don't because customers expect quality from the get-go. Especially now more than ever. Like There's an expectation. Maybe it's Apple's giant shadow that they cast that when something comes out, there's a certain level of quality and expectations mm -hmm. there. Yeah. That before, where technologies like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and all this kind of stuff was like, 
we'll, we'll let it pass. But now it's like, no, it needs to be connected all the time. Yep. And anything below that standard, does that add even more pressure with every release? Or is it uh, something that you've, you, you guys are just you know, masters at right now? I don't know if I'd say we're masters at because there's always opportunity for improvement, but that's fundamentally the nature of our game, gotcha. and that's how we work. And we have a whole team in this building that thinks along thinks along those lines and works to that goal. So, gotcha. and there and there's a lot of cross. There's a lot of sort of craft, if you will, in terms of how you approach this to ensure that that happens. And yeah. so we have a pretty experienced team. Uh, we've done this a lot. Uh, we've done quite a few devices at Kobo now, like over a dozen easily. I think it might even be more than that. Um, and uh, additionally, a lot of us come from other places where we've done this before. Right. We have great manufacturing partners that we work with that help us in this area. So uh, it's part of mm-hmm. that. That's what you have to do yeah. in order to do this business. And yeah. the reality is, you know, you touched on the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and those kinds of things. And that's interesting because in some technologies, your customer is inherently an early adopter. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a little more of a tolerance mm-hmm. on the part of an early adopter for sort of imperfection. Right. But the reality is a lot of our customers, they don't care about the technology. They don't care about any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not techie people necessarily. Some yeah. are, obviously. But uh, they just expect it to work and be great. Right. right. And so we have to deliver for them. If it wasn't obvious already, you guys are in the technology space mm-hmm. and there's change always happening. How do you navigate change? And maybe you can expand it to you and your team. How do you guys navigate that? Um, I mean, part of it is, to some degree, you actually have to tune out the noise, and you have right. to kind of just think and focus on who you're trying to reach. Right. Um, and, you know, certainly in the world of books and reading, um, there's a certain amount of stability in terms of what someone's trying to get out of that. Mm-hmm. So you have to stay sort of grounded in terms of what your goal is. At the same time, uh, you have to pay attention to what's going on. So fundamentally, like, you know, as, you know, as you probably are, like, you know, all of us are constantly on top of what's going on in the industry, what's going on in technology. Uh, one of the, you know, sort of benefits that we have is because we're in the space, mm-hmm. uh, we get to see further ahead than you might, for example. Right, right, so right. on the technology side, for example, I mean, anyone who's doing anything that's possibly relevant to us you know, we, we talk to them on a regular basis. We know what's going on in terms of, you know, what technologies might be available for products that are two, three, four years away. And that's kind of the kind of time horizon you're always looking out ahead mm-hmm. for. So we're trying to, you know, so we just launched Cobaforma. We're already thinking about what's its successor going to Right. Look like right. I don't know when that's going to come out. Is it two years? Is it three years? Who knows? Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but we're already thinking sort of on those kinds of horizons. So part of it is you just have to sort of inhale and digest everything that's out there. Um, that's the technology side. On the business side, who's who else is out there? Who's emerging? Who right. who might be doing something that's interesting that we might want to partner with, or we might that that's that's a challenge yeah. uh, competitively. So there's a huge amount of just keeping track of what's going on out there. Right. So that's part of it. That's kind of the input. But at the same time, we're not sort of passive recipients of that input as well. Mm-hmm. There's also the element of how can we be the ones who drive that change and that improvement. Right. But again, tying it back to that uh, 
those individual sort of user needs and user problems that we're trying to address and and you know improve upon. Right. So so it's a bit of both. It's a bit about us ourselves looking ahead and how can we be the ones who innovate. Right. But also just you have to pay attention. Gotcha. Like gotcha. You gotta really yeah, do yeah. it. I mean, as a product manager, you know you you need to know everything that's going on in your space in terms of where your what your customers are doing now and where they're headed. Uh, and I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but are there any like tips or tricks that you have to doing that and managing that? Maybe it's a software, maybe it's just techniques or what or maybe something extracurricular. What is what are some strategies that you employ I mean, to be good at it? Reading a lot. That's a huge part of it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. uh it's you know, and whether it's whether it's books, mm -hmm. whether it's just Following technology media, blogs, mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. There, mm -hmm. There's that. That's just a big part of just it. Just always absorbing. You have to continually be interested. Right. If you're not, you shouldn't be doing the job. Like gotcha. fundamentally, you got to be excited about this stuff. Right. And if you're excited about this stuff, mm -hmm. you want to know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And so you have to have sort of a kind of an insatiable curiosity. Yeah. Obviously, you could occupy all of your time. Right. Just doing that, just right. reading and looking at everything that's out there. So you have to balance that against the actual day-to-day -day of doing what we need to do in terms of building product and all of that kind of thing. Uh, but that has to be part of it. You have to be curious about it, and you just have to be into whatever you're working on. Right, right, right. Uh, I can't imagine not being and still being fully engaged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you talk about being excited. I'm sure I want to talk about something that's exciting to you, and your team is the Kobo Forma. Mm -hmm. I apologize if you're listening. It sounds like a sales pitch, but <laughs> I think it's fair that I'll let you kind of introduce the Forma, and I have some questions about it. So what is the Kobo Forma, and who is it for? Great. Uh, the Copa Forma is our brand new e-reader. We just launched it a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a big screen, super comfortable e-reader. I mean, that's kind mm -hmm. of the, the, the simplest way of putting it. So it's our premium device. Uh, it's got an 8-inch screen, high resolution. Uh, all our e-readers have a light, but mm -hmm. uh, with the light on the Forma, you not just the brightness is adjustable, but you can actually adjust the color, the color temperature. The temperature. So you can go from a cooler white right. to a warmer white. Uh, and you can do that on, based on time of day because there's research that shows that blue light can be... Yeah, we were finishing up an interview harmful. with yeah. uh, a neuroscientist and yeah. she spent you know a good portion talking about blue light, the impact on your brain exactly. and what it does to your sleep and really impacts entire cells in your body. So exactly. did you guys go through the research of that side too? Absolutely. We wanted to understand... Uh, you know, it's interesting because there's sort of a... There's that element of it right, that right. motivated us towards having this kind of capability. Uh, but there's also just an aesthetic element to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, personally, for me, even in the middle of the day, I like kind of a more warmer sepia tone when I'm reading the book. Right, so, right, right. so there's just a pure aesthetic element yeah. to it. But absolutely, the blue light and all that underlying research is something we were quite conscious of. Right. And uh, so the idea is at nighttime, uh, it, it doesn't make it absolutely go away, but it significantly suppresses it right. so that there's very minimal blue light and that's you know better for your sleep um, beyond that though kind of what when we started the journey of the forma which was soon after we launched the aura one mm -hmm. again we think about the next one almost immediately after right. the last one you know we had this idea that okay so we did this big screen what do we do next mm -hmm. right and and you know even with that big screen you know we had some some of the initial customer feedback was, I love the big screen, mm -hmm. but it's starting to get a bit unwieldy to hold. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not sure where to put my hand. Right. It's, you know, and, and that's kind of something that we were aware of as well. And we were like, okay, so... And I feel know, like everyone has a different technique with these things. Like, I got a little pad under my thumb, and that's kind of how I... Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the thing with the e-reader is, 
in smartphone world, you know, everyone's going after 400, 500 DPI screens, and it's, it's, it tends to be a spec race, especially right. in the Android world. Right. Apple doesn't quite play that game as much. Uh, and uh, But our customers don't care about that kind of stuff. So mm. so just, oh, we went and doubled the RAM. Who cares? Yeah, like, it's meaningless yeah. to the end user. Oh, what does that even mean to us? That's right. right. So, yeah. so what we really focused on was comfort, mm -hmm. and we wanted Forma to be really comfortable. Mm -hmm. So so we ended up, and again, going with that, that plastic display technology, even though the device isn't flexible, it allowed us to be make a much lighter device. So mm -hmm. Forba, Forma is about 30 grams lighter mm -hmm. than its uh, predecessor. Wow. Uh, just to give you a reference, form, reference point, Forma is 197 grams. Mm -hmm. um, the iPad mini, that has a slightly smaller screen, 7.9 instead of 8.0, is uh, I believe around 310 grams. Right, right, right. So we're we're more than uh, we're like about two thirds the weight. Right. So so it was really optimized in that sense. But then we also wanted to have a really comfortable natural shape. Right. And so above and beyond that, one of the things we've again been hearing for customers and we've been thinking about is page turn buttons. It's great that you can touch or swipe the screen to turn the page, mm -hmm. but some people would like to not even have to do that. And the nice thing with the buttons is you can basically be holding it and it just barely moving at all and the page turns. And it's one of those things where I looked at it, I'm like, damn, I just got this one. And I'm like, now yeah. I'm, because again, just being able to have one hand on the device and navigate it, thinking about the user experience, again, back to the exactly. customer, what they'll value. That's right? exactly it. Yeah. And then the other cool thing, which was interesting because it was part of the development process of Forma, is when we first had the initial, like just non-functional models, of the device we were testing, people were holding it and they naturally held it sideways in landscape mode. And so really? one of the cool features of Forma... When, when did you guys see this happening? So oh, this was like over a year ago, like gotcha, a year gotcha. and a half, two years ago now. Yeah. So Forma has a landscape reading mode as well. Wow. So basically it has an orientation detector like your phone. So depending on whether you're holding it left-handed, right-handed, right. or in the sideways landscape mode, yeah. uh, it automatically detects and rotates the, uh, gotcha. the screen for you. Wow. So we have this new kind of landscape reading mode. Uh, and then, you know, it still retains all the great stuff like being waterproof. Right. Uh, so yeah, that's basically Forma. It's our, it's our uh, really, for what we make, it's the best, most comfortable way to read. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah and, and as someone that's always thinking about attention to detail, how much time went into the, discovering the angle at which you're going to bend that side? Oh, there? considerable, considerable. <laughs> the, team, the team was looking at a lot of ergonomic research right. and like what that sort of what this angle is between right, sort of right, your right. thumb and your was there any, any internal debate between two camps deciding no this is the angle and that's the angle no i mean we kind of developed organically i mean you, you, you nothing try. ever led to fisticuffs here no no fights no right. fights <laughs> yeah well that only happens when we talk about things like colors <laughs> fair enough everyone's got an opinion on color <laughs> right 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 of course so uh so yeah that's forma we just launched it and we also have this really great accessory a sleep cover that comes with it Mm -hmm. And the sleep cover uh, has a stand function. So mm -hmm. if you want to have it you know, on the table reading without having to hold it, mm -hmm. uh, it can do that. And it's really cool because it has a stand capability both in vertical orientation but mm -hmm. also horizontal orientation. Mm -hmm. So it has this really cool origami-like magnetic feature right, on the cover. Right. So that's pretty sweet as well. Yeah, the difficult thing about these conversations is it almost feels like a sales pitch for me. Now I feel like i got to get one. Um, but you know, I want to ask you one thing is, it's a question we ask all our people is how you deal with negativity. But let's frame it with this product, for example. Yeah. You put all this time, research into releasing this thing. It clearly solves a number of issues or problems that people, they don't even think that they had. You release it and put it in the wild. 
and you might or you might not, I'm not saying it happened, but some negative feedback might come your way. Uh, you know, and no one ever likes to see that one star review and then you're oh, like, wait, like, there's no context for this thing. You, you, how do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. It's, it's tricky because, you know, it's hard not to take something personally when you've been living and breathing. This thing's your baby, your team. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, so many people in this building yeah. have been just putting their all into getting this thing out. Uh, I mean, so one thing that helps a lot is we've generally had a great positive reaction from reviews. So that all obviously right. makes things a little easier. But that being said, there is negativity. Uh, there are, you know, things that people say that, that aren't great. And sometimes these people are not even your target customer. No, and that's might exactly fall into it. their lap. And so the first and most important thing is to try to objectively listen to it. Right. Uh, and, and fundamentally, what can you learn from it? Can you learn something that lets you make improvements? Mm -hmm. And you might conclude, you know what, this one person is not happy with the thing and we're never going to make them happy. There was a good reason why we chose to do this. We were thinking about our user and we really focused on doing the best by them. Mm -hmm. And as a result, this other person they just weren't satisfied. Like you're never going to please anyone. Right. And so you do need to kind of develop a thin, a thick skin in that sense and say, you got to look at the big picture. Mm -hmm. That being said, lots of feedback, even negative feedback and even expressed negatively can be constructive. Mm -hmm. Anything that relates to product quality is something we're really conscious of and we're constantly trying to address and improve. So mm -hmm. that's, that's one thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it would be really hard to say any product is 100% perfect. And if there's anything we can do on an ongoing mm -hmm. basis to make it better, we're certainly going to try. So that right. kind of feedback is great. Other stuff is, okay, this person didn't like this part of it. Let's, let's, let's just kind of look at it objectively and say, did we make the right decision there? Could we have done it better? Uh, and obviously we do that at the <laughs> before we make any of the product de decisions in the first place. But it's always worth revisiting your assumptions. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody's perfect. And uh, and you might conclude, you know what, that was the right call. Because uh, one of the things that people externally don't see are trade-offs, for example. Right. Trade-offs between if we did this, that would compromise this. Or, or sometimes just cost. Like, yeah, we could have done this, but it would have just added too much cost. We have commercial considerations. We have business cases that we have to sort of adhere to. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so there's a lot of behind the scenes trade-offs that necessarily a consumer doesn't see that we need right, to consider. Right, right. So we have to sort of be open-minded, hear what people have to say. Uh, if those things totally motivate us to make changes, then we, we should right, do it. Right. Um, and at the very least, if they make us challenge our assumptions, we can kind of go back and say, you know, did we make the right call? And, so, and sometimes we'll say yes, sometimes we'll say no. Right. And we'll also take that into account in terms of the next product because gotcha. you're always trying to improve. Gotcha. On the topic of trade-offs, was there something, I don't know if you can share this, but was there a feature that was mentioned during the design phase of the Forma that you ultimately did not include and now looking back, so glad you didn't? Oh, that's a tricky question because yeah, those are always. Let's let's think about that. Um, is there? And I, you can take your time because I don't want you to yeah. tip, tip the hat to someone else. Well, or, no, and that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Is is there sort of what we can say publicly and what we can't say publicly? Um, let me. Okay, I think I can talk about this one. Yeah. yeah. Might need to edit it out later, but for now we'll go yeah. with it. So um, our our this is a technical 
mm -hmm. decision, which is that our e-readers all have a single core CPU mm -hmm. in there. Uh, obviously, you know that smartphones have like four, eight. I, mm -hmm. I don't even know what the top oh, end right, is right, right, now. Right. Um, interestingly, Apple has historically always had much fewer. So when everyone else was doing quad yeah, core, Apple yeah. was only doing two cores, and I. Not sure where they're at now. I've lost track, but uh, uh, and it was based on look. There's not actually a user benefit. It's just yeah. a number that people are chasing. Yeah. And so one of the things that's come up is well, why don't you guys use a dual core processor? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's something we've considered. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, it was our actual underlying operating system and software architecture. When we dove deep into it, we concluded there's not actually going to be any user benefit mm -hmm. in having that second processing mm -hmm. core. Sure, we could say dual core rather than single core, mm -hmm. but it actually would have no user benefit. Mm -hmm. and frankly, it was going to cost us more money. Right. So it was one of those things that was considered, and some people asked about it because they're like, well, you know, people are saying, why didn't you have dual core? Yeah. And if you actually go and read some of the forums and yeah, you know, some yeah. places where people talk about Koba products, that question comes up. Right. Uh, and it's been asked internally as well. Yeah. But we looked at it and we said, you know what? This isn't actually going to benefit the end user. Mm -hmm. It may, in fact, make the battery life slightly worse with no user benefit, right. and it's going to cost more money. Right. Why would we do that? Right. So that's an example of that kind of thing. Was there? I'm looking at the Forma, and if anyone you don't know, go online. You could see see a picture of it. Uh, you have the Kobo branding on the side there. Mm -hmm. Was there debates about having it there, having it on the back, not including it at all? Is oh, absolutely. That always comes up. Like, right? what made and you guys decide to put it in that corner on that side there? Uh, well, in the case of Forma, it actually kind of works out naturally because of the physical form factor of the device. Mm -hmm. uh, because you can hold it with your left hand or your right hand, mm -hmm. uh, and you can easily switch and it automatically detects, um, and people change all the time. Yeah. Um, if we had it vertically, like if you're holding it in your left hand, say, and it was in a portrait vertical orientation, and we had it on that written that way, right. when you held it with the other hand, the logo would be upside, upside down. down. You don't want an upside down logo. Right. So rather than do that, and also given that the device also naturally also had a landscape orientation right. where you're holding it sideways. Tilted toward you. Yeah, yeah, we basically had the logo on the back such that... Uh, it looked vertical mm -hmm. and not upside down. Right. It basically was when you were holding it sideways, and then when you're holding it on either hand, it's it's vertical, and that's the same with the front logo. Yeah, so yeah. that was sort of there. There was there was actually yeah, yeah. when we went through that whole process, that was kind of where it made sense to go for. Nice. Uh, and then we also had a. Uh, you know, we have kind of that textured pattern on mm -hmm. the back, so we want all the area where you're holding to have that textured pattern, and that's very intentional because, you know, we want it to feel warm. Right. You know, something like aluminum, for example, it was a conscious decision not to use it precisely because it's cold right. and it can be slippery, right. uh, which is not really what you want when you're reading for mm -hmm. hours, just, or exactly. even, even less than an hour, even for a short amount and people, of time. people, they're used to what a book, especially when you take off the wrap, what it feels like. And yeah, it has texture exactly. to it, right? So we were going specifically for texture in that feel. Mm -hmm. uh, that, was, that was, you know, as much... The, as much as we considered the physical shape and the weight, we also considered just the tactility of right. it. So, so we have this texture pattern in the back, and the logo, the way we've done like an embedded logo in the in in the material, uh, it it works nicer if it's on flat rather than texture. Right. And so, but we didn't want to compromise anywhere you might hold it. So it naturally made sense to have the logo strip on the back be farthest away from where you hold it. Okay. So that's sort of, there's a whole bunch of consideration, yeah, yeah, yeah. both design, visually, but also functionally right. that kind of went into that. Amazing, amazing. Um, I want to transition into the users themselves. So mm -hmm. myself, love eBooks. 
love this whole aspect, all the benefits that come. I'm not having to carry books when I travel, having you know tons of books with me, all that kind of stuff. My wife is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Absolutely prefers physical books. Yep. And I know early on with Kobo, it was all about um, try us, try it, try it, yeah, try yeah. it. Is that really a thing now? Is it? Are you still as a company and as a design team looking at taking people that are you know book fans, physical book fans? And transitioning to that, or is that less of a focus? Well, I, the way I would look at it is, we think reading is great, and mm-hmm. you know, we fundamentally, you know, don't see people who are reading print or print as a medium as mm-hmm. antagonistic to us. Mm-hmm. But what we do want to do is have people read in the best way possible, just have the best possible right. reading experience. For some people, that just is fundamentally whether it's physically or emotionally tied to the object that is a book. Mm-hmm. People talk about the feeling of paper. People talk about the smell, mm-hmm. right? You know what? We're never going to... Okay, hold on. Did, gonna... you, did you guys ever in conversation think of implementing smell onto your readers? Because this is a crazy thing that people bring up all the time. The smell of the book, they like that. We've, talk, a... we've talked about it. Oh, there may have been alcohol involved. Oh, we ultimately decided not to do it. <laughs> Which camp did you fall on? I, I was against it. Okay, all right, all right. I feel like it would be a bit of a ridiculous thing to do. Um, but so there's always going to be people who are just drawn to that medium. Right, right, right. Uh, and, but, but we've spent a lot of time and a lot of research, uh, including talking to people, doing deep interviews with people. Right. Because uh, actually what's interesting about our readers is a lot of them read both. People mm. who are really great Kobo customers who are reading on our e-readers, buying lots of books, they also read lots of print books. Mm. So we've definitely spent a lot of time talking to people and finding out what's going on, what what motivates you. Because right. we just want to give the best possible reading experience. Right. That's our goal, right? right. Uh, and, uh, and, if, and if we can do things with our physical devices, with our software experience, mm-hmm. that gives a better experience than print for some people, then mm-hmm. we're absolutely going to try. Right, right, right. I don't expect to convince everyone, but if we can deliver a better experience, that's we're trying to do and so one of the things you know we've talked to people and you know there's so many benefits with e-readers you know having a ton of books on your device being able to read it out in the sun right. uh, you know just being and, the, and again the physical comfort i personally find now when i pick up a print book yeah. just like this thing is so unwieldy how am i supposed to hold yeah. this thing yeah, you know right. that that's me and that's a lot of our customers yeah, especially when jk rowling puts in like 500 pages exactly. or whatever it is <laughs> exactly. and you want to travel with or it. you got a hardcover right yeah uh, so, so, but you know, one of the things we've learned is, is people tell, still talk about, oh, there's aspects of reading in a print book that just are better. Right. You know, I can have my finger over here and jump back and forth and stuff like right. that. So we're constantly doing that research, trying to understand what aspects of reading print does better right. than digital to see if we can improve our experience. Right. And I don't think realistically we're going to close all those gaps because there's so many people who have different reasons for preferring print, uh, and rather than just sort of fixate on getting people reading print to reading digital as a goal, right. our view is we just want to have a better experience. Right. And if we can learn from why people are, some people are reading print, then we're going to do that and try mm-hmm. to incorporate it into our product mm-hmm. and then see how it goes. Yeah. Whenever you're in the creative process, uh, often you're not alone. You're working with teams, mm-hmm. and sometimes you're working with people you have no history with, yeah. you've just introduced, maybe a new member to the team. How do you lead effective teams in your eyes? Uh, I mean, I think it's really important to kind of establish some context and some principles, right. just some goals, goals at a big picture level. I think 
it really helped because you know a lot of people when they're in their day to day, and especially if you're if you're making in any way, shape, or form, whether that's you know doing some CAD for a mechanical design, or whether that's debugging software, or running do, doing some quality testing. Uh, there's so many disparate elements in terms of what comes into it, right. and so a lot of people end up kind of focused on the minutiae of what they're doing. Right. Uh, necessarily, that's part of getting that job done, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it helps enormously, at least I hope it does, and certainly from as, as a leader, one of the things I at least aspire to, yeah. I'm not suggesting I'm perfect, but like as a goal, is giving people context. Why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Why am I doing my particular thing? How does that fit into the bigger picture? Why does it have value? What is the overall sort of goal? What are we trying to accomplish? Right, I think right. having that context really helps people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's you know uh, something for me uh, mm-hmm. I consider very important, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I think that helps a lot for everyone in the team. And is there some things that you do uh, or might employ to get people to buy into a vision, even though they might not agree with the context? Yeah. and this happens all the time. The, the reality in the corporate world is. Some some decisions, some directions are obvious. Some aren't. Right. Uh, I think an important part of it is having uh, transparency and decision making, but also just how do we go about making decisions? Mm-hmm. And again, in a corporate environment, you know, sometimes it's oh, this exec decided they wanted that, or this person decided they wanted that, and right. that's what we're going to do with no sort of further explanation. Right. So, whereas especially when we're making product decisions. Uh, how do we decide to do this software feature versus that software feature, Um, both in terms of helping people understand, but also in terms of making the right decisions, Mm -hmm. it helps a lot to put some structure behind it. So, you know, we have feature A versus feature B. how do we assess the user impact of each one of those? Which will be perceived better? Mm-hmm. Which will, if, if it's something that directly maps to numbers, whether it's engagement, how much time people spend reading, or whether it's actual, like, does it sell more books? You know, right. put, some, put some number targets beside it. Look at how much effort it's going to take. And then you can kind of put all that together and try reasonably to sort of objectively assess different options so that when you make a decision, there's actually some justification right. behind it. And when you have that, and when that process is reasonably transparent and people are involved in it, then, you know, it's at least you can make a strong case for it. And sometimes there'll be disagreement. Right. And one of the things you have to do, and I think this is sort of as you as you become a bit more experienced and in whatever role you're in, recognizing that, look, I might not 100% agree with that decision. Even after all of that rigor, yeah, yeah. I still, you still get an element of judgment calls around it. But you also have to rally behind things. Right. So maybe there's disagreement, maybe even violent disagreement, prior to making the decision, but when a decision's made, you really just all got to get behind it and right. try to make it work. Nice, nice. And inherently, your position, your team, it's rooted in creativity, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's a lot of your electrical engineering background that you bring into it, uh, but you need creativity Absolutely. to get this thing off the ground. Yeah. How do you foster creativity both with yourself and with your team? Hmm, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm, the starting point is I'm lucky that... Uh, to have a very talented team in mm-hmm. the first place. Uh, and I think a huge element of it is having fun problems to solve. Mm. Uh, because the reality is if 
if you're excited, if you find like, you know, I want to do this better, I want to do that better. How can I design this in a way that is cool? You know, mm. like I think having fun, engaging problems to solve uh, helps a lot in kind of just sort of getting those creative juices right, flowing. Right. Uh, I think where we're really lucky, and I certainly, one of the things I really like about what we do is the fact that like the people who use our products are consumers. Right. So you sort of want to do right by them. And so that's, and, and, and then when people do use and Almost engage that with your inherent obligation to them. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Like there's definitely, that's the right word. It's very much an obligation. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, Knowing that kind of, I think, kind of is really inspiring in right. terms of coming up with ideas, coming up with ways to do things. Nice, yeah. nice, nice. Um, I want to talk about uh, literacy on more of a global scale. Sure, you're making you're making a product that's used by people all over the world. You're employing technologies and mediums that are again something that can be scalable to all kinds of people. So, how do you see ebooks, audiobooks, really impacting people on a global scale? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost what we make, what we do, our, our devices, our ebooks, like I think it's really great from the point of view of making reading more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all, the, all, there's all the benefits we've talked about and you know, why e-readers are great and e-reading is great, but you know, we as a company are very global. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, from early days, we kind of spread through, uh, around the world and so we're very, we have a very global footprint in terms of where we sell. You know, we've launched into new markets like Turkey or Mexico mm-hmm. or Taiwan over mm-hmm. the last few years. Mm-hmm. And so getting our stuff in front of as many people as possible is one big part of it. Uh, so just kind of from that geographic footprint point of view. Uh, but as much, if not more important from an accessibility point of view is making our products attainable to people and you know we spend a lot of time talking about forma it's our ultra premium device it's not our cheapest device by any stretch uh but there's also this is why we have a portfolio and a mix and you know good better best our our entry-level devices we're really trying to make them to be great, but also pricing them so that like they're accessible to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can definitely get one on discount at least below 100 bucks, even if the MSRP is a bit bigger. But mm-hmm. you know, Black mm-hmm. Friday, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But above and beyond that, the books themselves. You know, and the reality is, uh, not everyone can afford to buy books, right? Right. right. Uh, and there's a reason libraries <laughs> exist. It's yeah. because even before e-reading was a thing with print books. Um, if you couldn't, you know, afford to like buy everything you wanted to read, especially if you read a lot, uh, people would go to the library. So a big thing we've done is uh, make library books, and and libraries have ebooks. Not mm-hmm. everyone actually fully realizes this, but most public libraries in North America, for example, have ebooks that you can borrow. Right. And so with our devices, you can actually go and take out those library books directly from your device. Yeah. You just have to like set up your uh, uh, with your library card number and stuff. Right. But once right. you've done that. It's, it's no different than buying books from our Huge store. Huge accessibility thing, because again, yeah. you know, it's something that I actually took advantage of where from the comfort of my home, I could borrow a book from my local library, so to speak. Yep. But you know, for people where commuting is not as easy or may have a disability, exactly. uh, I really, you know, something that just empowers them a little bit more, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of another really cool element of accessibility to reading that we do, uh, which is, uh, not everyone knows this, but Kobo is actually a very large publisher in and of ourselves. So we have this thing called Kobo Writing Life. And as an author, 
if you write a book, you can basically directly publish your book, your ebook, mm -hmm. uh, on our platform and sell it in our store. Wow. And so uh, I don't even know the numbers now, but we have thousands of authors, and it's actually, as a publisher, it's one of our bigger publishers, right? Especially up there. for younger people. Like, I'm talking Absolutely. about, you know, maybe the ones that are savants with their writing. Yeah. You know, 15, 16, 17. How do you get that out in front of a whole bunch of people? Yeah. And this is an opportunity to publish it and sell it. Right. And, and one of the other great things, going back to the accessibility thing, is uh, often, our, uh, from a pricing point of view, uh, the prices in a lot of the Kobo Writing Life books are really great and accessible. Right. Right. Uh, there's tons of things you can get that are like less than five bucks. Right. Uh, and then we also have free books available on our store as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So certainly those provide sort of uh, at much lower price points mm -hmm. uh, or free, in the case of library books, uh, stuff to read. Mm -hmm. And then you couple that with the sort of big sort of international footprint of where our devices are available as well as our entry-level devices which are sort of very you know reasonably priced mm -hmm. and just kind of put that all together and that's kind of our approach to, to nice. making reading more accessible. Nice. I mean we're at the tail end of the conversation but whenever I talk to someone I want to get to know them personally I'm sure some of this is something that our listeners or viewers also appreciate is beyond books and mm -hmm. this kind of stuff is there other things that interest you like movies, music, sports or any of that kind of stuff what else takes up your time? Uh, I mean, to be honest, a lot of my time is kind of in the world of either this stuff, but also just that that stuff I mentioned before, but like constantly sucking in information mm -hmm. and the curiosity. That's a lot of my free time. Right. That, that's a lot of that as well. Uh, and then beyond that, yeah, I still try to, you know, read as much as I can because really? I, yeah. I want to be as much a user as I am. A, uh, is that how you unwind? Is it just books? Uh, that's definitely part of it, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Nice, nice. Are there, are there some best practices or tips that you can provide to someone that's looking to go into a role like yours that ultimately wants to build products that are going to be used by millions of people? What are some of your tips and tricks, so to speak? <laughs> okay, that's, that's I'm sorry to put yeah. you in this thing because no, I'm asking no, you to summarize your yeah. <laughs> entire career into like maybe one or two hot takes. But. Um, definitely don't shy away from new things and new challenges. Mm -hmm. um, making if if you're interested in kind of being a product type person mm -hmm. then certainly making things building things mm -hmm. I mean when I, I say building the most general sense whether it's software whether it's design mm -hmm. uh, kind of creating for people mm -hmm. and continually creating new things over your career I think that's a huge value in being sort of in this kind of role uh, think about the user mm -hmm. You know the person who's going to engage with what you're making, uh, and put them in the forefront mm -hmm. of of your thinking, of your choices. Uh, I think those are some things that will definitely uh, have a huge benefit. Awesome, awesome. Thank you again for your time. Thank you. Again, if you're watching this, the full episode can be found on the Controlled Chaos podcast in the link in the description. And we'll see you guys next time.